This is Comms Day Live. I'm Graham Lynch and welcome to the show. This week, we're going to be talking to the CEO of Amplitel, John Lipton. Now, for those who don't know, Amplitel uh, used to be part of Telstra, part of Telstra Infraco. It's its tower unit. It was spun out. It's a separate company. And with a separate company, there's a new identity, a new mission. We're going to find out all about it. But first up, we're going to hear from the executive editor of Comms Day, Mr. Rowan Pierce. Welcome, Rowan. Hey, Graham. Now, today, um, today we're going to talk about um, the ongoing saga of the Telstra TPG regional network sharing deal and uh, an interminably long consultation process from the ACCC <laughs> where they just get to basically lodge submissions in, in repost to the other side, apparently on an ongoing permanent basis. In fact, I'm, I'm going to miss this when they make a decision eventually. Um, but we, we had the latest reiteration um, this week. And, and as we're heading towards what's nominally a December deadline, um, some of the rhetoric's been dialed up a bit, Rowan. Tell us all about it. It, it has, but just, just on the timing thing, it's kind of... Um it's funny, really. So the HRC now expects to make it a decision on 22nd of December, which means that no matter what the decision is, someone's Christmas is basically going to be ruined by this. It's like, it's like I don't know, like, I imagine it's going to be a fairly lengthy kind of document. Can you imagine, like, spending the days before Christmas just reading through it? Um, but I guess that's what, that's what telco lawyers get paid, paid the big bucks for, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah so it, it's, it's interesting, actually. They're definitely in that kind of, like... Um, uh, it, it is heating up a bit, and there's this constant to and fro. And I guess, like one of the most recent things has been Optus advancing the idea that, well, if if TPG and Telstra deal is blocked, then likely outcome of that is that we'll probably do a deal with TPG, and obviously that will be better for competition. Kind of either a roaming deal or a network sharing arrangement like Telstra and TPG have proposed. I guess the, what's happened now, though, is that TPG has fired back and basically said. We don't believe that's a likely outcome if it's blocked. Um, and I guess T TPG has basically argued that they have kind of um, uh, commercial incentives that diverge, which means that the thing is not likely to work. Um, the basic kind of TPG argument is that Optus has this incentive to maintain the status quo, which means only having a minimal TPG presence in regional areas. And also, I, I guess, actually, here, here's a quote that I wrote down, which is, um, TPG said that Optus would want to ensure that TPG remains an inferior competitor on coverage and does not gain market share at Optus's expense. Um, obviously, TPG has kind of said that the whole business case rests on taking market share both from Optus and Telstra. Um, I guess the, the other point that TPG has made to the ACCC is that they don't believe that they, you know, they're saying that they won't have an incentive to raise their prices if the deal does go ahead because. They want to compete on value with um, Telstra and um, Optus in regional areas. Yeah, interesting stuff. I mean, intuitively, and I'm not taking sides here, but intuitively, if Telstra is the dominant game in town in some of these places and, and the, the Optus challenge isn't so strong for whatever reason, network signal or lack of sales infrastructure on the ground, whatever it may be, that it seems to be quite intuitive that TPG is going to win a lot of share at the expense of Telstra. I mean, I don't have much more to say than that, but that, that's what it seems like to me, that it, it doesn't necessarily disadvantage Optus as much as Telstra, if indeed Telstra is the effective de facto monopoly in these places right now. But anyway, it's just, they're just my thoughts, and, and um, 
might have a little bit more to say about this as we get closer to Christmas. Um, moving on, moving on. Minister Michelle Rowland, Communications Minister Michelle Rowland, um, gave a speech this week um, revisiting what's been a, a really big theme of telecommunications policy discussion in the past couple of years, and that's about the resilience of networks. And, of course, this was all brought to the fore uh, where we had that terrible run with both floods and bushfires going back a couple of years. Um, and, and government, of course, takes time <laughs> to, to work out its response to these things. But but the responses are getting developed now, and, and Michelle Rowland had quite a bit to say about it. Yeah, actually, I mean, actually, just be- just before I launch into that, so this was, uh, this was a minister's speech at the um, ACMA Redcoms conference in Melbourne. Um, and actually, just getting back to the regional comms thing, um, or the Mocken thing, I should say, one one kind of theme actually in the minister's speech, which I wasn't going to touch on necessarily, was the kind of the idea that um, there should be more choice um, for people in regional areas of mobile network, which I guess is one kind of like, I, I guess is not um, totally at odds with what TPG has said, because obviously in a lot of places at the moment, um, or not a lot of places, but a certain segment of Australia, really your only option is realistically Telstra's network. Um, but yes, uh, so so resilience, quite quite interesting. Um, the government did say in the budget they were going to have $400 million towards kind of like better this better regional connectivity package. And about a quarter of that is actually being dedicated to resilience, but they haven't really until now given any indication of how that's going to work. Um, so the minister kind of gave us a bit of a, a preview um, around kind of three, what she described as kind of like streams or like work streams for this resilience spending. So one's going to be around broadcasting resilience, and that'll be basically hardening kind of the broadcasting sites that provide um, ABC AM services in, um, in regional areas, obviously during bushfires and stuff, they're kind of like, that's a key key way of getting emergency warnings out. So the second stream, though, is going to be this new program, which is, um, the minister said uh, called the Telecommunications Resilience Disaster and Innovation Program. Um, and that's going to kind of build and extend, she said, the, um, the Strengthening Telecommunications Against Natural Disasters Program, the STAND program, which was actually the, um, launched under the previous government. Um, the third is going gonna, is gonna to be further funding for the mobile network hardening program. And the minister said that would basically be reducing the risk of services outage and actually improving restoration um, times during natural disasters. So there's a couple of interesting things in there that leak out. One is like um, I'm kind of interested in, in, in what they're going to do around restoration times um, from natural disasters and how that's going to work. Um, obviously, you know, we're seeing NBN doing some work in that area, but I don't know, don't know what else they've got in mind for that. Um, the other thing was a kind of this, the idea, this successor program to stand, which also um, has innovation in its title. And the minister did kind of comment on that, that they were open to you know innovative new ideas about how to deal with some of these problems. So it's going to be quite interesting once we get to what I assume is going to be like a grants round or something similar. Okay, well, that, that's good stuff, Ron. Thank you very much for joining us today. Cheers. Well, moving on, we're joined by the CEO of Amplitel, John Lipton. Welcome to the show, John. Yeah, thanks very much, Graham. It's uh, great to be here today. The reason we're speaking with you is uh, you you came to our Comms Day Wholesale Forum last week and gave a very interesting presentation introducing the world to, uh, or our world at least, <laughs> to what's going on at Amplitel. And j- just for listeners who, who might not be totally aware, Amplitel is one of the companies created by the big restructure at Telstra, 
that has occurred this year. And specifically, it's it's um, the legacy tower assets of Telstra that have been spun off into a new company. So, John, can you tell us all about Amplitel, like who, who your owners are, and, and what, what kind of assets do you have in the, in the company now it's fully formed? Yeah, sure, Graham. For those that don't know, Amplitel was established on the 1st of September 2021. It's, it's hard to believe where some... 13 or so months old, that we've certainly seen a, uh, a rapid evolution of the tower industry in that time. But uh, we were established in September last year, following the transfer of the towers business, as you said, from Telstra to Amplitel, and a sale of 49% interest in that business to a consortium of investors. The consortium includes the Future Fund, Australia Retirement Trust, Commonwealth Super Corporation, and Morrisons. And the consortium has appointed Morrison & Co as the manager of its holdings. So very quickly, Amplitel, we own and operate 8,000 towers, just over 8,000 towers, right across Australia, making Amplitel Australia's largest wireless tower infrastructure provider. We also have access to Telstra's equipment building rooftops and approximately 160,000 of Telstra's street side poles to support our customers' radio equipment deployments. And our customers include mobile carriers, public emergency networks, private wireless operators, major corporations and non-for-profits. Lastly, because we get asked quite often, we do operate independently. We're not a mobile network operator. We're not a carrier and we don't supply any carriage services. Okay, so that, that, that's um, really interesting and that actually leads me to my next question, which is how has the spin-off, you know, you've got a new set of shareholders, um, how has that changed the view of the world, where it came from, which was Infraco? And, and I'm, I'm thinking particularly in terms of a new management and I guess the philosophy that you have towards the market. Yeah, sure. Look, the new ownership structure has really surfaced a number of strategic objectives aligned to running an infrastructure business more as opposed to running a telco business. And fundamentally, it's about taking a much longer term view of the investment required to improve our asset utilisation by improving access to our infrastructure. And these objectives in turn provide that long term sustainable growth back to our investors. So, for example, they include investing in new tower infrastructure to support our customers' wireless network requirements with multi-tenancy in mind from day one. So as an example, we plan and design our new towers with sufficient structural capacity to support our customers' equipment. Our preference is to avoid building towers that are only ever single-tenanted, so increasing utilisation across our portfolio by providing better access is a key strategic objective. And that, that improved access includes investing in new services and solutions. And just to name a few, implementing a new asset management system for asset inventory, workflows, order tracking, critical to an infrastructure business, but perhaps not a key priority with all the competing priorities for a telco. Investing in innovative approach, approaches to reduce the cost to upgrade our infrastructure. You know, we're continuing to invest now in in-house engineering services capability to make it easier for our customers to install across our portfolio of towers and provide customers more choice in engineering provider. And probably lastly, as an example of that, Graham, of course, it's continuing to invest and enhance our digital twins that we have created for our network of towers. Again, 
all to make it easier for our customers to access our infrastructure and improve that asset utilization, which in turn provides that long-term sustainable growth back to our consortium of investors. Okay, well, you mentioned digital twins just there, and um, for 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 those few listeners who weren't in attendance at Comstay Wholesale Forum last week, you gave a really interesting presentation about how you use digital twin technology in the Amplitel business. So, can you expand a little bit on that, and what what's your actual application for the digital twin technology, and and how does it benefit the business? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Great question. A question we get asked uh, uh, a lot of times recently. Look. We all recognise the importance to continue to adapt to our customers' current and future needs. And I just mentioned some of our strategic objectives, including improve our asset utilisation by improving access to our infrastructure. We believe that leveraging digital twins and ultimately developing, we're calling it a towers metaverse, will enable our customers to access our infrastructure far easier than ever before and make faster decisions. So today, as a customer with access to our system, if you have equipment on one of those towers or or you're considering placing equipment on one of them, you can gain a very detailed view of the available infrastructure. So our customers can can virtually scope sites now in three dimensions and get served what we're saying is accurate as surveyed information. And the simplicity of this digital twin will help our customers to understand the infrastructure quicker, all from their device and in a matter of seconds. So let's, to help maybe bring this to life, Graham, if we consider as an example, a fixed wireless retailer, and let's say this fixed wireless retailer is providing broadband to say a remote mining community. Historically, we would have seen multiple email exchanges to understand some very basic location information, often requiring that customer or the customer's contractors to travel to site to determine suitability of our infrastructure to accommodate their equipment. Our customers had to confirm if our infrastructure was suitable, and this put a lot of onus onto our customers, often requiring them to source some sort of specialised skills that they didn't always have. So today, with access to our system, where we do have a digital twin, this business no longer needs to travel physically to inspect our infrastructure and determine suitability. We've got functionality and we're planning for more functionality so customers can virtually add and remove their equipment and this instantly converts to an application to co-locate, saving them time on both site visits and any desktop analysis. So we've created now over 2,000 unique digital twins and we're on track to have created 90% of our mobile structures by 2025 because we wanna continue to build these twins to transform those customer interactions and give our customers the tools to optimise their deployments and reduce our customers' deployment time. It's it's definitely one of the more detailed explanations I've heard of how digital twin technology has been used in the telco space. So thanks for that, John. Now, um, just had a a final question. Now, obviously, the spin-out of Amplitel isn't a unique event in the tower sector. Optus and TPG have, have done similar things. And this has invited quite a bit of interest from um, the, the regulatory and government sphere. Uh, I think at last count, there were three parliamentary and regulatory inquiries into various aspects of the tower market, looking at such things as its impact on competition policy and also plans to deploy in regional Australia. Um, what, do you think Amplitel has a good story to tell um, to these inquiries and, and, and in, in particular, some of the issues they may well have with, with, with these developments? 
Yes, there are there are three running at the moment, Graham. That is correct. Um, Ampletel has well over 5,000 existing towers in regional and remote Australia. That's significantly greater than, than any other tower provider in Australia. We're committed to maximising utilisation of this existing network of towers in line with our mission to be Australia's leading provider of tower infrastructure to support our customers to deliver their wireless communications. Now, there are clear efficiencies with sharing existing infrastructure and maximising utilisation of our existing assets for our customers. Co-location, and of course, that's where multiple mobile network providers will install their own equipment on a single tower, is typically far more economical than self-supplying new infrastructure. So if multiple carriers do co-locate on a tower, this can improve the choice of service providers in that location, and that brings various benefits to that community. This is particularly acute in regional, rural and remote areas of Australia, where the commercial incentives to invest can sometimes be challenging. So given Ampletel's extensive footprint and investment already made, together with our expansion plans in regional, rural and remote Australia, we believe making it easier and faster for our customers to co-locate on this infrastructure is certainly a very positive message for governments, these inquiries, and importantly, the regional and remote communities in these areas. So, yes, we think we've got a really good story and it's a positive message. OK, well, on that note, uh, thank you very much for joining us. That's John Lipton, the CEO of Amplitel. Thank you, John. Thank you. Now, moving on. We're joined by Simon Ducks, the Chief Editor of Communications Day. Welcome, Simon. Hi there, Graham. Now, um, first up, um, DigitalOcean. This isn't a company that many people in Australia have heard of, but it's actually um, a, a quite interesting cloud provider based out of New York City. They've put some acquisitions together over the years in some interesting geographies, such as Pakistan, for example. And they're coming to Australia, and you had a chat with them about it. That's right, Graeme. Uh, very interesting company. Um, it's uh, that particular market segment that telcos always struggle to service very well, uh, being the small to medium enterprise. Um, DigitalOcean uh, in uh, well over 150 markets, uh, uh, they suggest. And uh, interestingly, they've been servicing a bunch of Australian customers from uh, Singapore uh, in, in their pop. And they've noticed the fact that uh, obviously, if you want to have absolute minimum latency, you've got to be on the ground. So they've announced their newest data center in Sydney. And that's their ninth global region to house a data center and their 15th facility overall. Now, uh, I spoke to the uh, VP infrastructure, Chris Higgins, and uh, he wouldn't divulge who their partner was, but they've been known uh, in previous uh, uh, locations to use Equinix and Digital Realty. And given the fact it's called SID1, my money is probably on Equinix for that one. So uh, the thing about these guys is that they offer a whole suite of uh, services for SME uh, to get people online and using uh, business tools, essentially. And we know that uh, Australia has good cloud adoption when you look across APAC. And uh, what's attractive, of course, is that this is a consumption-based revenue model. Um, they did their results fairly recently, and uh, they're looking pretty strong at the moment. Uh, they got a little bit hammered uh, because of the fact that they suggested that the outlook was a bit weak. But uh, the CEO did point out that uh, 
macroeconomically, everybody's seeing a weak outlook going forward, including the big three hyperscalers as well. So uh, the interesting thing about them is that uh, out of their top 25 customers, uh, they represent less than 10% of their revenue. So you can imagine that uh, it's a really big spread of industries they're exposed to, uh, market sectors and all. And just to give you an idea on the sort of spend, uh, they were talking about that excluding their high-end uh, recent purchase company Cloudways, um, their highest spend customers are spending 50 US dollars a month, and that's growing 29% year on year, up to 122,000, and that's 86% of their total revenue. So you can see that we're not talking about huge spends here, but uh, for SMEs uh, to get on the internet and to uh, do their e-commerce online, this is actually quite an attractive proposition. And uh, uh, Higgins mentioned to me that uh, the uh, looking at the traffic and how it's going to grow. Uh, he suggests the initial modelling suggests that uh, they may even uh, move towards a Sydney 2 uh, at some stage as uh, they get more and more customers on board. Uh, but if Melbourne kicks up as well, then they'll also look at that because they're 100% customer driven on where they're building out their networks. He says he, the CEO challenges him quite regularly on where next, essentially. So it's definitely one to watch. Yeah, yeah, they're an interesting company. I hadn't heard of them before <laughs> we wrote about them, actually. Um, so it was interesting to find out more about them. But I guess also the, the subtext to all this is that Sydney is, by some measures, a sort of top 10 data center market in the world, maybe top 20, depending on how you look at it. Dif definitely um, top two or three in Asia pack. And, and um, you know, in some respects, if you want to do anything in the global space, you have to be in Sydney these days. That's how significant we are. And and we've obviously talked about this both in the pages of Comms Day and on this podcast before. And that's the development of Australia as a sort of genuine interconnection hub because it bypasses some of those perilous places such as the Taiwan Strait and the Straits of Malacca and so on. And and it's sort of proof of the pudding really that you do you need to be in Australia. So it's um a, very much a good news story for um Australia's telecom sector. Now moving on Talking of other things which are good news for the Australian telecom sector, um, you, you covered a very, very interesting announcement that just slid out of the G20 meeting the other night. No one picked it up except for Communications Day, so congrats on that, Simon. That's um, um, yeah, uh, uh, the form of, of international backing for Australian telecom investment. Tell us all about it. That's right, Graham. Uh, this was an interesting uh, announcement that came out um, from uh, the PM, uh, Anthony Albanese, and uh, also uh, uh, Prime Minister Biden, and uh, the Japanese uh, Prime Minister as well, uh, Kishida. Uh, so uh, the thing that was quite striking for us was that uh, the US and the Japan governments have announced that they're going to provide 50 million US dollars each in credit guarantees to back Export Finance Australia's financing package for Telstra's acquisition of Digicel Pacific. So the money itself isn't the surprise, but it was a little bit more the statement of intent from the PM about further in, uh, telecom investment uh, that uh, struck us as quite interesting. So we know that Telstra finalised the uh, US $1.6 billion acquisition in July. And uh, of that, $1.33 billion US uh, was financed by the Australian government. So uh, now we're going to have the United States International Development Finance Corporation and the Japan Bank for International Cooperation also putting in some money. And one of the things the PM said was that it reflects our commitment 
to help build a stronger region through investment in infrastructure in line with the PGII and the Partners of Blue Pacific Initiative. And uh, for the people that are wondering what those two things are, we're starting to see them pop up more and more and uh, watching them a lot uh, closely. The PGII is the partnership for global infrastructure and investment that was uh, agreed at the G7. Uh, and uh, on the telecom front, they are funding $600 million to build the CMEWE 6 cable. So you can see there's some big infrastructure going in there. And uh, the partners of the Blue Pacific Initiative uh, also announced this year is uh, made up of Australia, Japan, New Zealand, the United Kingdom and the United States working together to do collective strength in the Pacific uh, for closer cooperation. And they will be working to support uh, the Pacific partners as well, uh, working through uh, the Pacific Islands Forum, and uh, they will obviously be interacting with the Pacific Island Forum leaders meeting uh, as well. So there's some interesting things there uh, on the uh, Blue Pacific uh, because the fact that they're looking to deliver uh, more infrastructure for the Pacific and this is where we're actually seeing some of the stuff come out uh, that you've seen that Australia's already in, uh, invested in the East Micronesia cable and the undersea cable for Palau. So again, uh, very interesting developments and uh, with the geopolitical situation we find ourselves in now, it's uh, hardly surprising that we're starting to see more and more of this investment going in. Probably worth keeping in mind with uh, Blue Pacific in particular that a lot of this, the genesis of this was a few years ago, takes time <laughs> for these things to manifest. And a lot of it was actually specifically in reaction to the Belt and Road Initiative of China, which of course sort of you know, spread through the world. I think they've got 100 countries or so to sign up to it. And, and this is sort of the reaction of, of the peak Western countries to build and road, which is to facilitate these types of projects, but also do it in a slightly more low-profile way. So I, I have a feeling the Australian government might not be too unhappy that this announcement didn't get too much reporting. Thank you very much for joining us, Simon. No worries, Graham. And that's it for Comms Day Live this week. We'll see you next time.